How can genetic testing inform anticoagulation? Is it dangerous to discontinue aspirin? What's going on with HIV infection in those aged 50 or older? And using big data to look at deaths from lung disease. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on September 29th, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I'd like to turn first to the journal, the American Medical Association. I was especially interested, intrigued, to see how genetic testing can help us determine, wow, if someone needs Coumadin or Warfarin, how can we dose that? Our listeners are probably aware that Warfarin is the most widely prescribed anticoagulant that's blood thinner worldwide, and it's also a significant cause of emergency room visits as well. This results from people being overdosed, and that's because there's a lot of variability. So the dose for you can be very different from the dose for me. And we know that's affected by certain genetics that determine how the Coumadin is metabolized. They identified genetic abnormalities in 1,650 people that were randomized to either use that information to dose their Coumadin or standard Coumadin dosing for the first week and a half after someone's on it. And the primary endpoint was, did using this pharmacogenomic approach reduce the risk of major bleeding or a significant amount of time where people were over anticoagulated, or did it affect the risk of having death or thromboembolism? And what they discovered was it reduced the complication rate from about 15% to about 11%. But when you look at the individual components, the only thing it really decreased was a little bit of the over anticoagulation. To do this genomic testing takes several days at specialized centers. If it's being done electively, that's one thing, but oftentimes people need to be started anticoagulants without that information being available. It is statistically significant. Is it clinically relevant? I'm not so sure. I am guessing, though, that this approach is going to be something that's going to be taken with a lot more frequency in the future, as I'm going to guess that all of us at some point are going to have these genomic analyses that are going to impact on the care that we receive. Elizabeth, I'm a little bit more skeptical. If it's going to cost a lot of money, if it's going to take a lot of time, and if the only thing it decreases is not a significant endpoint, I'm not so sure of the utility in the near future. Well, and then I would finally add that, of course, we have other agents that don't require that careful titration that are out there that I think ultimately will end up completely eliminating the need for Coumadin. And that's a very good point because we have what are called NOACs, newer oral anticoagulant agents that really don't need to be measured. So this may become less relevant as those become more widely prescribed and also cheaper to use. Since we're in the Journal of the American Medical Association, let's stay there. This is the use of big data to take a look at chronic lung disease. When we talk about data, we're talking about extremely large data sets that one can analyze to help reveal patterns or trends. This is a really very well done study that looked at trends and patterns of differences in chronic respiratory disease mortality in U.S. counties across the nation from 1980 to 2014, looking at over 80 million individuals in which there were four 0.6 million deaths due to chronic respiratory disease. What this data tells us is the deaths due to chronic respiratory disease are increasing. It used to be the number four killer. This makes it now the number three killer. This is really disturbing because most other deaths, cancer deaths, for example, or cardiovascular deaths are decreasing. 
And then when you use the big data to drill down, 85% of those deaths are due to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And that's associated, obviously, with smoking. That's increased in women more than it has been in men. And that's because there are more women smoking now than there were 30 years ago. Where does this happen? It happens in low-income individuals, oftentimes in the Appalachian states. That allows us to intervene in these particular areas to address this significant problem. Furthermore, they looked at there were several thousand asthma deaths. They seem to be centered in areas of low socioeconomic status, particularly in black Americans. And finally, they looked at exposure to coal or asbestos. And again, those were geographically located in certain areas. Coal-related deaths, or what's called coal pneumoconiosis, didn't occur in the areas where the coal mine were. They were in other counties. And that's probably because when individuals retired, they moved outside of those areas to other areas. So this big data information not only tells us about the deaths, but help us intervene in these areas. I'm wondering if we're going to see this spike in lung disease and deaths due to lung disease decline as people are not smoking as much as they were and others are transitioning to electronic cigarettes. I'm not sure how significant that is at this particular time. One of the things this does tell us is the individuals that are being targeted by cigarette advertisements, for example, are oftentimes individuals that have low educational status or low socioeconomic status in the Appalachian areas. So these are the areas where we need to address intervention, treatment, and need to address education as well. Okay. Let us now turn across the pond and take a look at a really disturbing trend, at least in my mind, and that's the number of new cases of HIV infection that are occurring in people 50 years of age and older. This is really an understudied group. Typically, when we think about HIV infection, we think about younger individuals. So it's only been in the last 10 years that we've actually begun to accumulate data on individuals over the age of 50 who have acquired HIV infection. This is an analysis of older adults in the European Union and the European Economic Area. This comprises over 30 countries and obviously millions of individuals. And they looked at new HIV diagnosis in people over the age of 50 and those under the age of 50. And what they discovered is exactly what you described, Elizabeth. Although less than a quarter of the individuals who develop HIV are over the age of 50, that infection rate is increasing in people that are over the age of 50, where it's as stable or decreasing in people under the age of 50. What exactly is their risk factors? It's usually heterosexual sex, and they're usually diagnosed later than individuals that are younger. It could be because they're more likely to develop that infection more rapidly, number one. Or number two is, we just don't think about it in older individuals. So we don't do the screening in them. We don't take sexual histories that alert us to the fact they may be at a higher risk. We don't even suspect it. This information, I think, is extremely useful to primary care providers caring for individuals over the age of 50 to make sure that this is still on our radar screen. Of course, this was all in European data. I'm wondering if we started looking at this, if we would see the same trend here in the U.S. Well, we do have some data that's a little bit more limited in the U.S. and Canada that shows very similar trends. I think it's worth noting that the recommendation is that we all be tested for our HIV status. I'm guessing that folks who are over 50 think that they're at very low risk to become HIV positive. And that's the other issue is not only educating primary care providers, but educating older individuals that, yes, you still are at risk, especially if you engage in risky behavior or if you're having heterosexual sex and it's not being confined to a single partner or not being done with what's called safe sex. Condom use is much lower in individuals over the age of 50 than under the age of 50. So your point's very well taken, Elizabeth. Okay, finally then, let us turn to the journal's circulation 
Wow, what is risky about discontinuing aspirin use? Aspirin is fascinating to me because it costs pennies. It's been around for hundreds of years, and yet we know it's a significant part of treatment in individuals that have known heart disease or at high risk for heart disease, which makes it one of the most cost-effective drugs available in the United States. We also know that about 10 to 20% of individuals that are prescribed aspirin, either they're at risk for heart disease or stroke, but they've never had it, or people that have already had a stroke or heart attack and we're trying to prevent another one, discontinue it within the first one or two years. These authors performed a cohort study of over 600,000 individuals in Sweden. Now, why Sweden? Because we have very accurate prescription records that were on low-dose aspirin who stopped it, not because of any recommendation by the physician, not for surgery, not for bleeding, they just stopped it. And what happened in those individuals, it increased their risk of having a heart attack or a stroke by 30%. And by the way, it started very quickly, but it never leveled off about three years of follow-up. What that means is for every 74 individuals that stopped aspirin, there was one cardiovascular event all right, and so I'm willing to take a look at this data and ask, why is that the case? What is the biological mechanism? There's experimental data that suggests there's a rebound. Then after that, you lose the antiplatelet effects. And for individuals that have already had a heart attack or stroke, it suggests they're at increased risk for a secondary event. We talked before about cost-effectiveness of pharmacogenomic testing. This is one of the most cost-effective treatments we have available. And if you discontinue it and it's indicated, it increases your risk substantially of having another cardiovascular or a first cardiovascular event. Right. However, under some circumstances like surgery or other invasive procedures, what then? Great question. You should stop it as close to surgery as possible, and you should start it as soon after possible as well. You try to minimize the amount of time that the person is not on aspirin. With bleeding, that's a whole different issue. We know that the bleeding risk is tied to the dose of aspirin. That's why we recommend using the lowest dose possible. For example, 81 milligrams of baby aspirin instead of a regular aspirin, which is 325 milligrams. On that note, I'm going to talk about new HIV cases in those aged 50 or older this week on the blog. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well. <laughs>